Hello, Redcoat here, producer and designer for uh, Vernacular Games. Uh, I've got Sientir here with me, and uh, we're going to talk about a topic today. Now, let's see what that topic is. So it's not RNG today. Uh, what is it? Ah! So today's topic is going to be challenge and difficulty in games. Specifically, when is a game just hard as opposed to challenging? Obviously, we've got to talk a little bit about, you know, what is hard and what is challenging. So, uh, Santer, if you would. This is, I think, a, a very important topic. Um, because there's a lot of games that uh, seem to me to just trying to be hard. Now, when I say hard, uh, I'm referring to this idea of difficulty being very high, kind of just because it feels like the designer wants to beat up on the player or to to have some reputation of being a hard or difficult game. Uh, challenging, on the other hand, is a game, uh, in my mind, that is seeking to make the player have to overcome something while providing them the tools to figure out how to do so, that sort of thing. I feel like an emphasis on learning is kind of a key difference, where a game that is a challenge game is one that says, hey, this is really hard, we want you to beat this so you can feel awesome for having beat it, versus a hard game is saying, oh man, this game is so hard, do you think you can beat it? And it's kind of like taunting you, as opposed to like being your ally, and it's it feels more antagonistic to me. Yeah, so that um, actually is pretty pretty spot on, I'd say. Definitely the idea that, uh, you know, a hard game is something where it just... It doesn't really want the player to enjoy the fact that they're, ha- that they're trying their best against it. Um, or at least it's not concerned with that, necessarily. Um, looking from that, uh, some of the games that I could think of that fall into the I'm so hard category um, would be, well, one of them for me was uh, a lot of the old um, arcade top-down shmups. Now, don't get me wrong, those games are pretty fun for when you're when you're like a master of them. But when you start out, uh, how many times do you die? You just like, you dead. You dead. It, it happens constantly. Um, and the very concept of what is good play in those games is not immediately apparent. You know, like the concept of don't just move all over the screen, just be really precise about how you move. Uh, I just remember there's a game that I played on the Genesis called Biohazard Battle, which is a side-scrolling shoot-'em-up sort of game. And there are these little red projectiles that I didn't even realize how much I had to pay attention to them until I played it more recently. And so this is a game I played when I was younger. And, yep, just constantly, boom, you're dead, boom, you're dead, boom, you're dead. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely, that's um, so that's that's a concept of, you know, just hard to be hard. Um, and you know, I love the series for for its animation, and it's beautiful and gorgeous. But Metal Slug is hard. It's just hard. Um, you you go in there and you're gonna die like 15 times in that first level. Uh, it is unapologetic about it. Of course, it wanted to eat your quarters. SNK cabinet. SNK, I love you. I do. But that game was really hard. So anyway. Um, you got any uh, got any ones on uh, your your list, Santer? 
Uh, well, the the one that stands out most to me when I think of hard, like the one that I immediately think to, is uh, Ninja Gaiden 3 Razor's Edge. I played that on the Wii U a bit. And uh, the reason why I say a bit there is because it was a very discouraging sort of experience. It felt like Ninja Gaiden had managed to get itself as a reputation for being hard, probably from its original, what, uh, NES days, something like that. And it, this game, it it felt like it was hard to just be hard, to adhere to that reputation. It's like, here's a thousand guys. Okay, that's an exaggeration. Here's 15 guys. Don't die, kill them all, keep your HP high because you're going to need it later in the level, um, that sort of thing. And it it felt really mocking also because they had a quote-unquote lower difficulty level called, I think they called it Hero Mode. And what that did is it just made the game automatically block and dodge for you when your health got low. And so it doesn't really let you learn. So if you try to do anything else in the game that is not playing that specific mode, you, just, you have no baseline to learn from so it it just it feels like it's being hard and is even mocking you when you want to try to learn the game by saying oh okay you're you're too bad at this game i guess we'll just have to play it for you yeah so that's a kind of a a deal there uh is some of these things that actually line the uh line these games up together when we look at well what made them feel you know maybe a little bit hard or possibly unfair um, now, I should know, um, there are games that are really, really hard that we do enjoy out there, but we're gonna get, we'll get to that in a little bit. But what some of the stuff that actually kind of lines these games up is that idea of, well, you, you get dropped in, and you don't really have a concept of learning what, you know, is good play in that game, what is playing the game well. Um, moreover, uh, in the case of Ninja Gaiden 3, uh, that ju- uh, juxtaposition of either the game is just stark hard or it plays itself for you, thus removing the ability for you to actually learn how to play the game and therefore be able to enjoy it at its, you know, at its fullest level in the way that it was intended. Yeah, I I would agree with that sort of idea. It felt like a game that would have the potential to be a lot of fun if it would just let you get there but it's just it feels like that bully you know the 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 tall big kid who's gone through puberty with the long arms who's holding the little kid out of the way and the little kid's swinging his arms trying to you know doing things just like making fun of his inability to do anything and that's kind of what it felt like to me so one thing that actually comes with this is there was a great example of a game that well, in a way, uh, did the learn how to play the game a little bit better, which just happens to be in the same series. I'm talking uh, Ninja Gaiden 2. Now, Ninja Gaiden 2 was interesting in that it did also have the multiple levels of difficulty, but what really differentiated the levels of difficulty in that game was the fact that each level of difficulty changed up the types of enemies that you were facing off against. Like, in the first... Uh, like in normal mode, you were mostly fighting against other human ninjas. Uh, some of those guys had swords in the in the earlier levels, and there was like, "Yeah, chop sucky," and you're like, "Yeah, chop sucky." I cut your arm off. It's actually off. You're dead. <laughs> uh, quick question: About how many enemies were you usually fighting in an encounter in that game? So starting out, um, you get about 
I feel like you get about three of them at once, and then you get opened up into about five. Um, and eventually you get to the point where you start facing off against a lot of enemies. Um, like, I think the maximum amount, and uh, I'd have to, I would have to go back and check it out again to be absolutely certain, so... Um, I believe the maximum amount you really ran into was uh, about 9 or 10 at any given point in time. Um, and uh, that's not accounting for necessarily types of enemies that kind of count as more than one enemy. Uh, this would be things like rocket launcher dudes who are on the far side of the, ri- uh, far side of the room, so you're dealing with them throughout the entirety of the fight, so it's like you have an additional enemy in there. Yeah, Death Out of Nowhere is a really effective way of adding to the stupid hard scale. Yeah, that's definitely one, and there were... uh, um, Ninja Gaiden 2 was not, um, shall we say, averse from doing that. Uh, There were some points where you just got shot in the face, and you didn't necessarily die because you had a ton of health, but it was still kind of like... Ow! Why'd you do that? But, in any case, um, that game had a lot of interesting interesting stuff with just ramping up the difficulty. I remember one of my old roommates, he got so good at the game, um, like, because there was, like, Master, and then there was Master, Master, Master of Masters, Master, Master, Master of Masters. I forget the actual attentions, but I just like calling them Master of Masters. Um, and uh, I just remember the first in the first level of the difficulty that he was on the uh you were fighting the gold level demons from the end of the game in one of the like mid level things just right there and you couldn't actually just chop their arms off and expect them to die you had to basically make them into a little torso just on the ground uh before they were dead um, but that guy was ridiculous at the game, and I just loved watching him play it. Um, me, I played the game at about the mid-level, and I loved getting good at it. Like, I didn't get that good at it, but I loved learning the ins and outs of all the weapons in the game and figuring out how to really be effective in it. Um, and that's one of the things, that's one of the marks of a game that actually has a good, a good or at least acceptable challenge level is when you can feel vindicated when you do something right, when you do something well in it. Yeah, that sense of you're building up your own skill, you're getting better at the game, and like this, the skill development that you can experience, that's, that's something that I, I love to, to change focus a little bit on more challenging games about Dark Souls, is like that game is very difficult, but the player's skill has such a significant factor in that um, and also, like, player expectation and stuff, too. And it it's that sense of, oh, now I understand how this works, now I understand how this works, and how it fits into everything, and here's how this enemy does things, and here's how I fight them, and just that sense of, like, mastery and, and learning and building up player skill is is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So on the topic of learning being one of the more enjoyable parts of challenge I wanted to move to one of the genres where this is actually a really big part of just what it is uh, that being the fighting game genre Um, although I personally would want to lean more towards calling it the versus series genre just so that it's not quite as um, let's say pigeonholed I guess is the term because there's, there's plenty of games out there that allow players to play against each other and learn how 
well, learn what it means to fight one another and fight one another well. Well, so from that standpoint, fighting games are designed to be challenging. They are designed to be something that you get in there, you're not quite sure what to do, and as you play the game, you become better and better at it. Now, fighting games are notori- notorious for being uh, obfus- uh, obfuscationist. That is not a word, but um, I'm going to say it is a word now. Uh, obfuscationist about how they how you're supposed to play them. Usually, the actual way to play the game is not immediately apparent. Um, take Street Fighter, for instance. Um, it's very difficult for any layman to come in and say, so what's a, what's a Hadouken? How do you do a fireball? You have to ask someone how to do a fireball. Um, it's not something that comes out of a player just naturally you know, moving around with the buttons and uh, using, to use a term, mashing with a purpose. This is something that actually comes up a lot uh, when I want to teach people how to play Soul Calibur, but we'll get to that. Uh, Sienter, do you have any uh, statements on that? Well, just fighting games in general, it's kind of an interesting thing, because part of the challenge that um, can often come in fighting games is kind of a two-part one. Uh, One is the actual challenge that you're experiencing a lot of the time when you're playing against another person is the challenge of playing against the other person. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about in versus games in general, and that there's that sort of what you end up having there is that the this difficulty scale is completely all over the place depending upon the skill of your opponent. Which is kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, in terms of fighting game controls, though, I feel like the controls are often just set up in a way, and in fighting games in particular, not just versus in general, but in, in fighting games, the controls have gotten this air of mystique about them that the community is very, very it's very key to their perception of what a fighting game is, is how successful can you be if you basically take the controller and mash against your bottom, right? And uh, it's unfortunate because I feel that that sort of challenge of execution ends up just being frustrating because it's one thing to be able to input, say, some sort of motion like a quarter circle, half circle, or whatever, and it's another thing entirely to be able to do it under pressure, and especially when the AI starts getting involved and starts reading your input and and just dismantling you, right? Or another player who knows what they're doing and they just dismantle you. I, my experience with fighting games is very minimal. Um, it wasn't until college that I really spent a whole lot of time interacting with them, and I just found trying to make my character do what I want to be a very excruciating process and I'd rather learn through playing and you just can't do that. So yeah, that's definitely one of the things that, you know, uh, as a bit of a as a bit of a fighting game, not necessarily OG, like I wasn't like one of the masters, you know, but I was a guy who really got into them very early on and so um I spent like, you know, lots of hours just going like quarter roll, how do quarter roll? And then finally, I eventually <clears throat> learned how to do it halfway decently for a while, and then eventually I got to the point where I could actually fight people. Um, but definitely one of the things there is that concept of 
um, nowhere really at the time, uh, there, certainly with a lot of the earlier games, there wasn't really much of a tutorial for just how how do you make your fingers do that, you know, or even the concept of, in a lot of games, just the very idea of what moves can you do was not really visible. That has definitely changed as of recent, but it is still a thing of where uh, to understand like, in a lot of 2D games, for certain, um, this is a thing. To understand what it is to be a character in the game, to to do what the character does, you, you usually have to have someone tell you. Um, moreover, the actual idea of... Um, now, the concept of a game that allows you to learn it while you play it. Um, definitely, Street Fighter doesn't quite hit this area. Guilty Gear doesn't hit this area either. Guilty Gear is a... Both of those games, you need a community with you to learn those games um which uh thankfully with you know network uh network play and stuff that's a little bit more accessible but it's still a thing of where you know um what i personally feel that it's still really cool when you can learn something by playing it uh yes center what do you got well this brings up i think a somewhat related topic to difficult games is community um and I think about game communities, one of the things that often happens with these harder games is in a, some section of the community that's very elitist about it. You know, about, oh, you think this game is hard? Well, I think it's easy. What do you know? You're just a pathetic noob, right? And this sort of lording it over people who find the game challenging or hard, whether or not they find it the, the gameplay to be difficult or the controls to be difficult. Uh, you know, there's a, the subsection of, for example, the Souls community that's like, oh, what, these games aren't hard. None of them have been hard except for the very first one that I played, whichever one that was, right? Um, and some amount of that goes to transferable skills. Like, fighting games have transferable skills of you know how to input motions, right? Um, or you under, understand how to perform sequencing or links, or you just have it in your head that holding this direction blocks, or to translate directionality of like, okay, so I make a motion that's a, a quarter circle back forward, uh, half circle forward, right? And right and left matter on that, and the way that you move your hand, and just there's a lot that goes into that. And so people can get very elitist about the skills that they've built up, and it pushes people out of those communities, and I think that's very unfortunate. But it's just something that felt like it was a related topic. Well, and I mean, it's one of those deals, right? Because it's, it's a difficult balance to run um, because, I mean, this gets into the idea of sportsmanship and all of, all of those areas of, you know... Because um, I think it's, it is, it's important to be able to feel like you're good at something. Um, I, think that's very, I think that's very fair, and I think it's fine for somebody to, you know, say like, yeah, you know, I spent all those hours learning Street Fighter, and I'm pretty good at it. I think it's I think it's good for people to be able to say those sorts of things. Now, at the same time, you know, um, and this just comes to you know nature of the community that you're in, right? Um, there's a difference between doing that and then you know going to somebody and realizing that you know they just started, um, they don't know what a quarter roll is, or maybe they do know what a quarter roll is, but they've never really taught their thumbs how to go and roll across the control pad or heaven forbid um they're not a they're not a, a stick player you know now granted me i'm not a stick player myself i did everything on the controller so that uh, put me in an interesting area for that but um using the stick uh, is in of itself an acquired skill um don't let anyone tell you otherwise that is actually something that you have to learn um but that said 
Um, one of the things that I do want to hit here is definitely that idea that it is very important to realize that players are at those different levels. Um, and, you know, it's not necessarily something of where you say um, that somebody who's just, like, amazing at the game is at the same level as somebody who just started, you know. Like, there is a certain level of adulation that I think is due uh, for somebody, like, you know, who plays... Uh, Eddie at the ridiculous level where they just, you know, take control away from the other player for the rest of the match. But, at that same time, there is a certain level of respect for just picking up the controller in the first place and saying, I want to learn. Um, and what that means, what that respect means is they wanted to learn. Now, it's either, since the tools aren't necessarily in the game to, to do this, it is kind of up to the community to look at that and say, okay, you want to learn let me see if you can do this, first off. You know, this might not be for you. But also, let me see what we can do to help you. Um, I think that that engenders a really interesting community, um, and it allows a lot of different things there. It, yeah, there's just this idea of the community coming together to overcome something difficult, right? Like, with fighting games as, as being the current example, um, coming together to be like, how do we conquer this control scheme that really is standing up as a wall against playing the game and how do we become masters of it and how can we come alongside people and help them become masters of it you know it's you you see it's an interesting balance to be struck of understanding when people aren't masters of something yet and and what i'm thinking of specifically here going back to dark souls as, as an example because it's convenient for this is the concept of where do you cross the line between being helpful versus backseat gaming and that sort of thing of saying, come on stupid noob why don't you know this already, right or um, why don't you just let me play the game, you're obviously so terrible at it like, you get some amount of that so it's like, how and this would be probably better in a community related focused podcast as opposed to difficulty, but just this idea of getting uh, how to engender the community to be supportive of each other as opposed to tearing each other down and that's something just just to think about in general especially about hard games is somebody's like why do people like this game and coming alongside and trying to help them without taking it away you know like a kid playing with a rubik's cube you know and here comes along a rubik's cube master is like oh i can solve that for you that doesn't mean that they get to solve it though that's taking away their their chance and so it's important to be careful of that. Most definitely. And I mean, this is also something, and I mean, it goes both ways as well, because it's, there's a part of it that is the responsibility on the people that are, you know, that have the experience to allow others to gain experience. And the other thing, it, it, the other thing that comes along with it is, say, you know, you're in that area where, you know, maybe the hard games just aren't your thing. Maybe the, the challenging games just, challenge is not the thing that, get you your jollies when you're playing a game. Um, and that's something that, you know, can be understood and respected. But it's definitely one of those things of where, you know, from that standpoint, that means there is a certain level of there is a certain level of respect for the people that do have that as a thing. So, you know, being being willing to accept that, yeah, now that's not my kind of game, but I don't necessarily want to, you know, get down on people for those sorts of things, right? And that's definitely a um I mean it's definitely one of those both ways things. Um, I'm not sure if that part, that side of it is atta um, attacked. I'm not sure if that's the proper term for it, but approached 
um, as often, but it's definitely a thing. But that's more for a community, uh, for a community uh, related one, I think. But on that, on the topic of games that you can learn while playing, because that was where we were at. Um, so let's let's uh, bring it back to there. I think one of the big things there is that idea that um, this comes from, in part, from your the way your input is designed and also how your game is designed. So um, these things are very key. Uh, if your game, uh, say your game is built with the idea that you have uh, a pea shooter gun and you're intended to, you know, shoot a lot of, uh, shoot a lot of the enemies that are out there um, and you need to get out of the way of everything around you. Um, to engender this idea of get out of the way of the enemies, it's important to make it very clear that you are not your enemies, for instance. So, some Something like your character doesn't look exactly like your enemies. Now, this might be just bad visual design in general, but still, um, it's, bad gen- it's bad visual design because it does make things really hard to tell. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah? Well, I think just talking about that learning thing, one of the things that's important is to understand that learning often requires failure. And this is an an idea here where games that handle failure well, like the player messing up, can often be ones either... It's a difficult balance to strike between making a game sufficiently challenging by having sufficient consequences to the player failing without having consequences so severe that it's discouraging. And that threshold is going to be different for each person. But what you're looking to have is this idea of, oh, I came away with something. I failed, but I see why I failed. Or I can see why what I was trying to do wasn't working. Not just, I didn't do it well enough, but why did I not do it well enough? Or what led to it not going well? And um, it's just a big topic, I think. Yeah, well, one of the things that comes to mind, thinking about examples of this, um, one game that really comes to mind was uh, the Beautiful Joe series. Uh, so this was a pretty hard game. It was one of uh, it was back when Platinum was still Clover. Yeah, they were Clover games. If you if you haven't if you didn't know about that, go ahead uh, check it out on Wikipedia. It's an interesting little history lesson there. Um, but um, Beautiful Joe was a game that was about you were you were Joe and you had the ability to control a whole bunch of movie powers. Um, so there's some interesting stuff about how they taught you about your abilities in that game. Um, one part was that they actually slowly but surely layered everything on throughout the course of the game. When you started out, you were just Joe. You weren't even beautiful. Uh, you just had the ability to punch stuff and dodge. And, you know, the game gave you some time to actually learn it. Now, it did it like an arcade did, which I, I found wonderful, um, where there's like, okay, we're in this pushing. Here's this enemy. He's gonna punch you. You gotta do this, and you'll get around it. Now, um, again, this gets into a little bit of the area of uh, tutorials and whether or not you want your player to, you know, figure it out on their own. But one thing that is important to note about tutorials is that depending, it's all dependent on the complexity of your game. Beautiful Joe is actually a fairly complex game once you get to it, um, which is why it had to actually layer all of its elements on, where you... You started out as Joe, then you got the, abil- the ability to go beautiful, then you got the ability to use slow-mo, uh, then you were able to be super speed, then you got the zoom-in ability, which was arguably one of the hardest ones to really use effectively. Then you were told, all right, you have all of these, do it all at once, and we're going to start throwing really hard stuff at you, and you'll have to make decisions about which one is the best. 
Um, and many of the situations could be solved in multiple ways by, uh, via any one of these different ideas. Um, and so there's a, actually a lot of interesting design there. If you get a chance to um, you know, look it up um, or play it, I highly recommend it. Um, both Beautiful Joe and Beautiful Joe 2. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that idea of being careful of how much you're whelming the player with or overwhelming them with uh, as the case may be, is, is kind of a, an important thing to think about there. Um, and again, going back to Dark Souls, uh, they try to set a certain tone by throwing the player in over their head, but I think one of the things that goes into that is that they want to push home the idea of you will fail, and if you're failing, that means that something could be improved. Like, that's usually what that means. And they they make it so that way in the process of failing you're learning and by learning you can then succeed and then because you failed all those times you have that rush that comes with yes i finally overcame this thing that's been so difficult for me to overcome and uh i can have a huge digression here about the educational system but uh i will try to avoid doing that um so just this whole process of going okay Here's a difficult enemy, and they're going to beat you. And we know that they're going to beat you the first time you encounter them, because you don't know what you're doing. But we want to set it up so that way when you don't know what you're doing, and you die, you can go back and think, how did I die? Why did I die? As a good example, uh, in, in Dark Souls, there are certain enemies that can go into what's referred to as a parry stance. This is where, if you attack them with most of your attacks, they'll say, no, that attack doesn't hit, and I get you back. Right? Usually for a lot of damage. And so you have this thing where you can start recognizing, oh, there's this pattern of I attack them when they're standing this way. They've made this particular motion where they're now standing in an odd way that's atypical to how most things stand in a more natural stance. And then I attack them, and they, they perform this special animation of deflecting my attack, and then they get me for tons of damage. And you can begin linking these pieces together and saying, maybe I don't want to attack them when they're doing that. And so there's this process where you can, can learn that way. Or just going back to the very beginning of the game, when you're in the Undead Asylum. Um, for those that haven't played it, you start off in a jail cell. They teach you, hey, pick up key to open door. But like the first actual enemy you face in that game is a boss. And that fight is extremely difficult to actually win when you first encounter it under most circumstances. And the idea here is look around you, get a feel for the arena, because they open an escape route. And so it's, it's this interesting idea of if an enemy is so difficult to beat, maybe you shouldn't be fighting it yet. Go a different way. That is, can be so key to progressing through that game. And definitely this actually hits a few parts on that, because uh, de one, definitely one of the things about uh, Dark Souls was, is the idea that it's a very player-driven experience, very much a thing of where you decide what challenge you want to take on, you decide if you want to be bullheaded and just go like, I'm gonna kill this guy, no matter what! Or you decide, okay, I need to figure out what's the best way to get around this. Um, and sure enough, if you, you know, take the escape route that opens up, 
you'll find some more you'll find some more stuff to explore uh, to explore you'll find gear and then you'll be better prepared which also puts you into a better position for what the games what the game's all about which is like you're getting better you're looking for things to make yourself better if you explore you will probably get better uh, in one way shape or fashion fit, um, as far as what your character is equipped with but at the same time, the game still expects you to actually play it. It still expects you to kill the enemies. It expects you to be the one to give that killing blow. And that is still there because once you get back to the boss, you don't just immediately kill him. You have to fight him. You have to beat him yourself. Um, and so this is actually a really good example of making a tone that, uh, that leans towards the way the players are supposed to play the game. Um, the designers did a really good job of conveying that this is the way these games should work. Um, so I find that very... Uh, I find Dark Souls to be actually a very well-designed game, and its predecessor, uh, its predecessor Demon Souls, was a very was also a pretty good game. Like I mean, Dark Souls is better because it followed up. Dark Souls Two, you know, a little bit weaker, but um, uh, Bloodborne, love that game. I'm really looking forward to uh, Dark Souls Three uh, myself. But uh, that's a digression there. One of the things that I will say also about Dark Souls um, as a game is that it uses tells really, really well. Whenever something happens, um, you know when it's not natural. When an enemy comes at you and is like, Oh, he's going to attack now. What am I going to do? Um, you know, you might re you might react a little bit slower the first time, but you start recognizing the tells and things like that. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. That's a key part of being able to learn a game is to be able to, and and for skill to matter also, um, is to be able to have the ability to recognize the situation and react to it appropriately. And part of that learning is learning what the situation is. That's the first part. And then the second part is, how do I react to this? Um, it actually makes me think of a similar idea. I'm going to, to compare something here. Um, in Castlevania Lords of Shadow, the, the first one, um, supplies also the second one to some extent, but the first one in particular has um, a sort of a, a tell that happens whenever an enemy is about to perform an, an unblockable attack. So you can normally tell when enemies beginning to do an attack, they do some sort of wind-up animation. So you have a parry mechanic in that game. If an enemy is blockable and you time the block right, uh, which means hitting it, you're not just holding down block, but you're kind of trying to synchronize it with the attack. Then you'll sort of parry their attack away and go into a, a mode where you can then wail on them for a little bit and get a bunch of bonuses to your to some of your other stuff. And the problem that I've encountered with that game and that parry system is that often the tell for unblockable is not sufficiently early to allow me to b differentiate unblockable attacks and blockable attacks, which means that dodging just becomes the operative way of dealing with enemies. Whereas in Dark Souls, uh, parry ability is more based on enemy type, and the more human-like the enemy, the more likely it is that you can parry them. And so it's learning parry timings and, and that sort of thing. Um, some attacks can't be parried, usually things like shield bashes, for example. And so there's this idea of, oh, I can learn how to parry effectively in Dark Souls, versus in Castle in, in Lords of Shadow, it's hard to learn how to parry because the unblockable, by the time you recognize an attack is unblockable, or at least this was my experience, 
Like, I could recognize an attack was coming. By the time I connected with whether or not it was blockable, it was too late for me to be able to effectively block it. Um, it particularly on certain enemies that had very similar attack animations, just one of them was a blockable and one wasn't. So that's a case where the tells do not sufficiently give me information. And so what I learn is to have to give up part of the game systems that are kind of important to to how you play the game because of the the additional properties that happen. So yeah, uh, on the also on the subject of tells, this brings me to probably one of my favorite shmups of all time. By that I mean scrolling shoot 'em up for for those of you who haven't heard the term. Um is Ikaruga. So, this is one I tend to harken back to a lot when I when I'm talking about top-down um, scrolling ga- uh, scrolling games uh, in general. Uh, but one of the big things about it is from the very from the get-go, uh, this game does a lot with its tells because you know you have a white you have a white ship that can turn black, um, and uh, it does follow standard shmup rules of you know you get you get hit once and you're dead you know standard uh, standard shmup rules there. Um, but one of the things that helps it out is the fact that you do have a defensive mechanic uh, in the form of your ship turning white or black. Because if you're white, you absorb white bullets. If you're black, you absorb black bullets. You might die once figuring out how this works, but that will probably happen in the first five seconds of the game, so you'll pick it up pretty quickly. Um, That said, uh, one of the big things there is that everything is white or black. So you immediately recognize, okay, if I want to, if I want to survive this, I need to turn this color. If I want to survive that, I need to turn this color. And the game just goes from there. It's a very simple mechanic, but it's very, very easy to tell what is going to kill you, what is not, and what you should be doing at this current point in time. Um, and this is like one of the simplest examples of a game that, through tells, makes it a little bit easier to understand. Yeah, I think just thinking about this this topic of tells and learnability is just such a key differentiator. Because think about the times when you get frustrated at a game. You're like, why do I keep losing? Why do I keep dying? What can I do about this? I have no idea how to tackle this issue. That, in my mind, is sort of the emotional... Um, experiences or, or sort of thoughts that go through my head when I'm starting to get frustrated with the game, then I'm starting to think of a game as hard. You know, what do I do about an attack that comes out of nowhere that I can't see? What do I do about an attack that just happens and it doesn't give me time to react? What do I do about a situation that there's no way for me to be able to judge what's going on with it? And, and this, to touch on just a little bit, can be a problem with random number generators that you have to be careful about is making sure that the situations don't become so unpredictable that the player has no ability to determine what to even do about it. Definitely. That is um, that is actually a pretty key point. Um, we'll get into that a little bit more on the RNG uh, talk, but definitely the one thing to take from that is uh, random is not always the best idea when you want to have control over the experience. And as a designer... Um, you do want some modicum of control over the experience because you are presenting you're presenting a world for the player to play in you are pre- and you're presenting an avatar for the player to play with uh sometimes the avatar is the player themselves um very rarely sometimes but that is still a thing you're presenting a world for the player to play in you're presenting an avatar for the player to play with uh which means that on some level you are responsible for what they encounter and you are responsible for 
at least how the experiences and encounters they meet are presented. Um, and so it is actually very important that, you know, when you have that decision of, you know, should I go random or should I go this way, um, you know, with this more deliberate route, you'll have to make some considerations about, well, how random. But we'll get into, into that in another, in another uh, bit. But that's definitely an important point on this one. Yeah, I just I think kind of the big takeaway there is one of the key differences between hard and challenging is how learnable is it? And the more learnable it is, the more it can fall into the challenging category, and the less learnable it is, the more it falls towards hard, just being hard. And um, hard tends to be more frustrating than fun for most players. So looking at it from a standpoint of, you know, what are some general things that we could try and do to approach this idea of a learnable game that is still challenging? Um, so on the subject of ways to make a game a little more um, challenging in a good way, um, definitely one of the things that we've come across throughout all of this is how you, how can the player learn the game, and is learning the game actually a really fun experience? Um, so one of the examples that, for me, uh, in the fighting game area, actually, was Soul Calibur. And, you know, this is uh, from Dreamcast era. Soul Calibur did this. Uh, Soul Calibur 2 did this. Um, when we started moving into Soul Cal 4, I'd say, um, they started losing a little bit of sight of this. Well, to an extent... But one of the things about Soul Calibur was how the inputs were done. Now, as we said earlier, you know, quarter roll is not necessarily intuitive. It's not the first thing that you go to when you're like, I want to do a move, and this move is important. Um, Soul Calibur is interesting in that it follows a little bit of what they did in the tacking games, where um, each of your buttons does something interesting, and it's just a button plus a direction, and you're going to get something different. Now, in Soul Calibur... Um, that pretty much got you into just how do you figure out your character? You mash with a purpose. Um, see, I brought that back there. Um, so mashing with a purpose, um, to be exact, is... So mashing is just uh, roll your face on the controller, watch what happens. Um, but uh, mash with a purpose is specifically... You start pushing buttons randomly, but you're logging away the action that is associated with the button press. So you're like, okay, I've got, um, I've got my horizontal attack. Um, it's named horizontal attack. It probably does horizontal attacks. But even if you didn't see the manual or you didn't go to the tutorial, when you push the A button, your character goes, ha, a horizontal attack comes out. Um, attack that is horizontal, or rather aligned with the ground, parallel to the ground. Yes, a horizontal attack. It looks that way. And you're like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> so from there, you're like, well, wait, if that does that, what happens when I push forward and horizontal attack? You do a horizontal attack that advances you forward with almost every character, save for the weird ones. They're weird. They're supposed to be that way. Um, but then you're like, okay, well, what if I do down plus a horizontal attack? I do a low horizontal attack. Holy balls! This makes sense! And so you're like, okay, well, wait, there's, a, there's another button, and when I push that, it does a thing that is perpendicular to the ground. That's vertical. A vertical attack, oh my goodness. So you're like, okay, so if I do forward, oh man, it's advancing! Oh crap, all of that stuff I learned on horizontal, I can, apply, I can apply it to vertical. This is intuitive control. This is intuitive control. 
it's this idea of natural mapping, of when you do a thing, it makes sense that it happens. Uh, I can take an example of a stovetop, because these usually have horrible natural, uh, like horrible mapping. Um, so when you look at a stovetop, you usually have four sets of burners, uh, two in the back, two in the front. That's just the space, how it lays out, that sort of thing. And then you have these dials to control them that are usually laid horizontally, and you kind of have to look at these little indicators to see which one goes to which, and that's just, that's horrible. You have to look it up every time. You have to keep referencing it. It doesn't make any sense. So what if they were arranged in a 2 by 2 grid like the burners, and the upper left one on the grid, that dial controlled the upper left burner, or the, the far back one, the left back one, I guess, looking down on it, and etc. for each one of them. Oh, that's intuitive. You don't even have to have labels anymore. And it's that same sort of idea of you push this button, you get this sort of thing, you do this other action that you'd naturally think it would do this, and it does that, and you're like, huzzah, I figured it out. Exactly. It's one of those things to take a take a note from Cosmos. Um, we humans are very good at pattern recognition. Pattern recognition is one of the things that humans are good at. And so, of course, we feel gratified when we recognize a pattern. Um, and it turns out pattern recognition is a part of learning. And therefore, you are learning how to deal with the challenge of the game step by step. Um, by recognizing the patterns intrinsic to the way the game controls, intrinsic to the way the game plays. So, uh, Santer, you got something to say on uh, difficulty implementation? I do. I have a lot of different things to say. Um, one of the, the first things that I want to talk about here is this idea of perfection. And this goes back to the idea of failure and how elegantly do you handle player failure. So when the player messes up, i.e. they fail to perform correctly, uh, there's usually some sort of consequence, and what that is really differs greatly. For example, uh, maybe you have a platforming game. There have been a lot of platforming games with spikes. How do the spikes get handled? For example, uh, in the Sonic the Hedgehog games, spikes, if you have rings, you hit them, you lose your rings. If you don't have rings, you die. So that has a certain margin of error or a certain amount of forgiveness built into the system. It says, if you mess up, collect your rings, or you die. And it's this idea of if the the less you allow the player to mess up, the more they have to be perfect. And that often requires memorization, and that can often be frustrating, especially the more random things are and the less you can tell what's happening. So you have to you have to be very careful about relying on player reflexes because those vary wildly from person to person. There's, there's a range, but there can be a lot of fluctuation in that. And... So if, if the amount of randomness is high and the amount of perfection required is also high, that is, the amount that the game forgives players messing up, that game is going to be really frustrating because they're going to constantly be failing and they just have... It basically comes down to feeling like you have to get lucky to win. And that cuts out player skill. The more luck is involved in being required to win, the less player skill feels like it has an impact because the less impact it has. And so building in systems that say, okay, the player's going to mess up, what are we going to cost the player when they do, is really important for figuring this out. And you have to be making sure... So if you, if you have that threshold low enough, then player failure stops mattering, and you stop getting this challenge effect, and when there's no, no difficulty there, basically, when you take difficulty away, it no longer has the reward that is associated with overcoming a challenge. 
have the bar too high and it just becomes a frustrating experience that either, depending upon the type of player, they're going to bang their head against until they beat it and then hate your game forever, or they're just going to like say, well, this is a dumb game and leave. There's usually a reaction somewhere along that threshold um, to just getting angry and rage quitting. So, uh, using so- some examples, life systems tend to decrease learnability because they, Im- they by their nature, put amount of time that you can put into learning a game. So, um, by life systems, uh, you mean, um, like, extra lives and that sort of thing. Like the, uh, when you die, start over again kind of deal. Or what, what do you mean by life systems? Yeah, so I'll use Sonic the Hedgehog as an example, because that's the one that popped in my head first. So, Sonic the Hedgehog has um, checkpoints that you go through, and when you die, i.e. lose a life, you go back to a checkpoint. When you run out of lives, you game over and have to start the whole level over again. Um, so those sorts of systems with these extra lives, this, these extra chances, extra mans, extra ships, extra, I don't know, force holocrons, whatever, um, limit your natural ability to be able to try a challenge. And so when you increase the time between attempting a challenge and reattempting the challenge, it makes it harder to um, retain sort of what you've learned. Uh, I'm going to use some Dark Souls and Dark Souls 2 examples here. Minor-ish spoilers about bosses and stuff. Uh, just as a warning. Um, so we got to plug your ears, plug your ears, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know quite how long this will be, but in, in the Dark Souls 1 DLC, um, there is a boss called Manus. This is a very challenging, difficult boss that has quite an amount of distance you have to travel to get to the boss. And because of the amount of distance and travel time involved, you have a fairly long amount of, of uh, time between reattempts. So to me, trying to learn that boss is not worth it. Fortunately for me, there is a cheese strategy. But that's not actually me learning how to beat the boss. I don't really get a sense of accomplishment from sitting there and shooting arrows at him off a cliff for, like, 10 minutes. It just allows me to be able to get the stuff, huzzah. I don't enjoy having to go through that long run-up process. That boss is a difficult boss. Now, in Dark Souls 2, there's, in in one of the DLCs, there's a difficult boss called the Fume Knight, who is very challenging, very hard, and has a very short run. In most encounters, he wins. Like, they posted the statistics somewhere, and he wins, like, 90% of the matchups he's in. I mean, the player only needs to win once, of course, so the, the odds are stacked in the player's favor overall in the long run. But this boss consistently destroys players. But because the, the distance to get to him is very short, it makes reattempting him uh, quick and easier. And so that means that learning how to fight him is less frustrating because the time between attempts is shorter. So it, to me, there, there is an element of what is the time between reattempts? And the more you stretch that out, the more and more that's going to be frustrating to the player and feeling like you're wasting their time. Definitely, that makes me want to jump back to some of the classic, uh, some of our classic samples, um, such as Sonic the Hedgehog, because there's a, there's an example of something of where your distance between trying and trying again um, is variable. Uh, and there are some interesting points here. Like for the Sonic the Hedgehog games, you'll notice the checkpoints are always right before the boss. It's like, after you've gotten through everything else, you're like, alright, I'm at the boss, and he just killed the crap out of me. I'm gonna do it again. Now, granted, um, 
depending on how good you are at the game, sometimes you just kind of get there and you just wipe the boss. But the first time you got there, he probably killed you. Probably. I'll, I'll say probably. Sometimes, not so much. Um, but in either case, it still stands. That first time you got to that boss, unless you were dying a ton of times throughout the level, which this is a part of your punishment for dying that many times before you got there, and make a note of that, Unless you spend all that time uh, dying before you got there, you've got another chance to actually deal with them, and that's your reason for trying to stay alive throughout the entirety of the level. Now, granted, Sonic the Hedgehog itself is, I would say, probably uh, a moderate difficulty game. Would you say that? Yeah, I would. Like, the platforming tends to be fairly challenging. Um, the the trick, and this has always been the challenge for the Sonic uh, team in so- designing Sonic games in general, is combining going fast with the lack of ability to foresee the future, um, meaning that it's difficult to balance going fast and not running into stuff. So there's definitely an amount of difficulty and skill required to learn how to kind of do that go fast that the game is trying to encourage you to do, and not go fast into a face full of spikes. Exactly. Although it will be noted that a lot of the earlier games were much more in the platformer area, I would say. Um, like we had the go fast stuff in there because you know Sonic does what uh, Sonic does what Ma- Mario doesn't and Sega does what Nintendo don't. Um, but uh, it was definitely a thing in the earlier games. It was there was a lot of platforming happening and there were some areas where you went fast. Usually when you were going fast, you kind of uh, you kind of um, just went uh, and then you got to a platforming stage and you're like okay, uh oh, gotta gotta be a little more accurate. Gotta jump over this thing and then bounce on these dudes. Um, you know, not nearly as hop and bop as, uh, not nearly as hop and bop centric as the Mario games, but that's what really separated se- um, Sonic from Mario. Uh, and you know, when we got to the the later games, the world of tomorrow, uh, aka 3D, um, things changed because platforming was, uh, well, platforming was this thing that was very difficult to do when you had to deal with depth perception. Depth perception is crazy. Depth perception changes everything. But um, we'll get into that on another one. Um, But definitely that idea of, you know, the Sonic games, because of the fact that you had the basically the two-hit system, or three-hit system if you counted the the shields, right? Because you could go shield, ring, and then you're dead. So you basically have a second chance vest um, and a third chance vest, and then you you were gone. But it was a thing that you could re-get your second chance vest, um, which meant that you could make a mistake and be like, oh, crap! 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 Okay, I'm good. Ow! Do it again! Ah! And so you had this ability to make your mistakes um, in the midst of really dangerous situations uh, and such. Yeah, but you still had to know how to react. Like, there's a skill in terms of recollecting your rings to to keep surviving. So, Theoretically, you could just keep going and going and going, but not in practice. It was definitely it was definitely a function of skill, uh, and that brings us back to full circle to that idea of a challenge. There's a challenge there, and it's a little bit of a subtle one, um, but there's definitely a feeling of wow, I'm actually really good at this game. I've had one ring for this entire map, and I've actually been getting hit a lot, but I'm still alive somehow. Like that's a, that's a pretty crazy deal there. There's also some uh, randomness management there as well, but we'll get into that. Yeah, and just uh, while I'm thinking about it, a contrast, just using platformers as a contrast, Super Meat Boy is an extremely challenging, extremely difficult platformer because it is, like, 
you touch things and you just go boom, you die like instantly. But here's the thing: you restart instantly. Also, so while it demands extremely high amounts of perfection, it has an extremely quick turnaround time of giving tries and attempting, and that is, is contrast to to the Sonic games, which tend to be longer form levels to begin with. Um, it's just kind of an interesting dichotomy or an interesting thing to examine there. Um, because Super Meat Boy says, you're going to screw up, you're going to screw up a lot. Most of the time when you play this level, you are not going to succeed. Maybe speedrunners succeed most of the time, but they're, they play the game a lot. Most players are going to fail the vast majority of the time, so they only need that one success, and it gives them a very easy, quick turnaround to have that success, as opposed to like a Sonic game, um, or those more traditional platformers that have that longer form experience where you have to try to get through this thing, and it gives you a lot more chances to screw up in terms of before you have to start over or completely start over or whatever, but because of the length, if you screw up enough, it can be really, really punishing with it. Definitely. So moving on from, um, from you know, the idea of the time between tries, uh, which is definitely a very important part because um, of... Uh, you know, whether a difficulty is challenging or just hard. Um, the next thing I wanted to hit was, well, how well do you teach your people? Um, and definitely this brings us to one of those hotbed things, which is uh, tutorials. When should you use them? How should you use them? What's a good tutorial? Now, that could, that could deserve a topic in of itself, but we'll just kind of skim over a little bit of it here. The main thing is you need to look at the complexity of your game when you want to make a decision about how you're going to teach your people. Is it something that a player can just into it? And um, an example of this is um, old Mega Man, old Jump and Shoot Man, um, which the game is jumping and shooting. So you're probably not necessarily going to need a tutorial for that game. You're going to run forward, um, and that's with you push a control, you push a button on your controller, and your character moves forward. So um, that's that's pretty intuitive. Um, pushing the jump button, that's also fairly intuitive. And pushing the shot button makes a shot appear. So you know your basic, you know your basic moves, and now it's just a matter of you know moving forward through levels that challenge you to use these basic moves. Um, as opposed to say, well, uh, going back to an earlier example, Beautiful Joe. Where there isn't before Beautiful Joe, there wasn't really a concept of zoom in um, for uh, to be specific. Um, but the other powers like speeding up, uh, speeding up, and setting things on fire because you made them move that fast, or um, using slow mo and how that actually works, and the fact that that actually slows you down as well. Um, and just the ways that those interact with the rest of the levels and the rest of the characters uh, in the game, um, that's relatively complex, and so that actually deserves a tutorial. Now, again, you're not taught all of those things at once in that game. You're taught those over the course of the game. But there are examples of doing that in the wrong way as well. Um, uh, The examples that come to mind are a lot of Various JRPGs. Uh, Final Fantasy XIII is one of the one of the ones that comes to mind, um, where there are a lot of mechanics in the game. There are. Um, there's a lot of interesting ways to equip your characters. A lot of interesting ways to interact with enemies. Um, how you juggle them. How you get them into critical states. How your elements work. 
um, I mean, that's just par for the course in um, in a lot of RPGs. Although I mean, RPG is a very broad term, um, we'll have to look into if there's a better name for that. Anyway, um, but uh, the main thing to think about here is that fact that there, there's a lot of complexity there. So you're like, okay, so I want to spoon feed my player, right? Well. Um, you do, but you don't want your player to feel like they're still in the baby crib um, halfway through the game. And um, that's kind of what happened in um, Final Fantasy XIII. You didn't really get the full reins of what the game was all about until you got like to the halfway point. Uh, then it just like turns around, and you're like, oh man, this game's amazing! I'm running around the world, there's all sorts of stuff to explore, fun, uh, fun things, but at the beginning, um, I mean, unless you're really into the story, and you're really following the characters, and you want to follow the drama, and I mean, there is a, there's a pretty cool story there. I mean, the, the Lassie, and all of those other crazy, um, fun words that they made up for that game, um... There was an interesting story there, and if that was enough to keep you going, then you got there. But if you didn't, if that wasn't enough, if the gameplay was something that you wanted, and remember, it's a game, so gameplay is important. Um, in um, one of my philosophies is gameplay trumps, um, which just means, look, your game, this is an interactive medium, so if it interacts badly, you've kind of failed, in my opinion. Now, that that's my opinion, you know. But, um... Yeah, so if your player doesn't quite survive that long, then even if there is a great game underneath there, you haven't given them the chance to really feel it. Yeah, just on the subject of tutorials, I feel like the the thing that's important to make sure you do in your tutorial is that you give the player the minimum tools they need to be able to get through the game. Now, the thing that's challenging and that's difficult to balance is A, figuring out what your minimum tools are, and B figuring out how much you actually want to give them outside of that. Because you can try to make sure that your player knows additional stuff, but you can't teach all of the players all of the things. Like, that's just not a practical or possible thing to try to do. And um, so, to some extent, it's better to focus energy on tutorials on making sure that the player has the minimum that they need to know to be able to get through the game. Um, when uh, I'm not going to talk about it at length because a th- thousand other people probably have, but the Dark Souls 1 tutorial, you have to be able to pick up items, and you have to be able to understand there are locked doors and you need keys, and you need to know, you need to look around the environment to find the stuff you need to be able to progress. So in the tutorial, they do this. You cannot get out of your cell because it is locked until you pick up an item. There's a button prompt there, so you have to figure out how to work the button prompt to pick up the item to be able to get through the cell. If you cannot do that, you will not get out of the first level. Like, you will not get out of the very starting room. Once you do that, you also have uh, a bit later, I can't remember exactly where it falls into the whole uh, play of things, but after your first sort of encounter of, like, do you fight this thing or do you run away, you have uh, a part where you go upstairs, you get hit by a ball. Oh, look, there's traps in the game. That's a useful thing to know, situational awareness. Again, they're trying to build up situational awareness. And then the consequence of that is it opens up a path forward. You cannot proceed without finding that that hole that gets opened up by that trap. Like, there's a locked door. You have to get through it. And without going and finding that hole, situational awareness. You need to explore. You need to find things. These are the key sort of skills that are necessary. Finding items, talking to NPCs to some extent, um, and knowing that sometimes you'll have to backtrack. You'll need to explore. You'll need to look for, for keys. 
that sort of thing. And they use these locked doors to force you to learn certain mechanics. And they're mechanics or gameplay concepts that are critical to being able to be successful at the game. So this actually brings us to one of our um, actual personal experiences um, with something that we made, uh, although it was, you know, it, we didn't really get it out to very many people, but that's beside the point. We made it. We did. <laughs> so the thing called um, Highway to the Moon, uh, it was a top-down scrolling shoot 'em up um, and uh, the whole thing was we had a few more mechanics than you would normally find in them. Because usually in a top-down scrolling shoot 'em up you just have that thing of where move your ship, move, and you move your ship. And by move, I mean push the control pad or the stick or, you know, whatever uh, controller floats your boat. It's that thing that you use to move your character. That's, what move, that's the thing that you use to translate to moving your character. Um, and then you have another button. That's the shoot button. And you just hold that down. Uh, you might push a bomb button every once in a while. But it's very simple, a very simple and pretty easily grasped within the first few seconds. You just push the buttons and you kind of figure it out. Um, for Highway to the Moon, we had a few more additional mechanics that the player worked with. Guns were more complex. You had um, multiple functionalities interred within the guns, within the way the gun worked. Um, your character had additional movements, such as being able to dash, being able to phase, and phasing was actually extremely important to play, because if you didn't phase, you'd fall off the road when it stopped being there. Um, we took some notes from uh, Spy Hunter and a few other uh, con uh, games for the, this core concept. We, When we say the game was called Highway to the Moon, we are being very literal. You're driving on a highway that goes to the moon, and there are some very large potholes. So yeah, um, so the fact of the matter was, like, falling needed to be a very, um, you know, very disastrous thing to happen to you, because that just makes sense. You're falling, like, millions of feet away. So that meant that that was a pretty punishing thing, which meant that, above all else, the player needed to know how to avoid falling. Um, so it's a pretty natural thing to think, well, if I'm on the road, I won't fall off. Um, and... Obviously, one of the other things we had to make sure was, well, what is road, what is not? And so we dis we showed that by just having, like, first second of the game, and then um, first second of the game, enemies fall into a hole. Like, just... And the hole is nowhere near where the player is. Uh, so it's just like... And the enemy dies, and you're like, hmm, well, that's interesting. And during the first portions of the game, um, there are other characters that are like yours, that do that turn blue, which this is the tell for phasing, but as a player, you don't know this yet. Um, so the character turns blue and goes over the same pit that an enemy dropped into. Um, and, you know, you might not think anything of it because this is just another dude. Um, but lo and behold, after, you know, killing a few enemies, which, you know, enemies show up and they're doing stuff. And if you push the shot button, you've got the ability to shoot. So um, hopefully you're good on that one. But... Uh, after a few enemies, that guy shows up again, uh, and he's being chased by another enemy, and um, basically, uh, again, he flies over an empty spot of road, this time not a, not a pothole, but actually just the road is gone, and he just flies over it while turning blue. Um, and another character shows up that's just like you, and basically says, hey, that thing that he just did, you can do it too, use this. And the game won't progress until you actually do it at least once. Um, 
and they, then the character says, you'll need this to move forward. And then immediately following that is a pothole. So hopefully you learned after that point what this is for. But um, we ran that through a lot of play tests. Um, we had, there was a long period of time where we were just going over how do we teach people how to do this freaking thing. It sounds really easy at this point, but let me tell you, we, we went through so much stuff because we had to actually design that first level to facilitate to facilitate it because we didn't want to just break the action because this game was supposed to be high speed high action um, and there were a lot of things that went into that like making it so that the players didn't actually bring up text bubbles ra um, text boxes rather they brought up dialogue bubbles and these things um, didn't actually break flow rather they were just kind of there um, and the player could actually destroy them um, which allowed for some fun things um, that also meant that we had to make one particular one particular bubble, um, the one that tells you how to phase and that you need to do it to progress, indestructible. But all the rest of them were destroyable. Um, but that kind of fit into the whole rhythm of the game. But general gist is tutorial. Um, that was a tutorial. That was a live tutorial in game. The kind of thing of where as you're playing the game, you start learning. Um, you're it's going to slowly but surely teach you things about what it wants you to do. Yeah, and, and one of the other things that was very important about it, there are a lot of mechanics in that game. As Scott mentioned, there's a dashing ability, for example. Um, and there's just there are a lot of mechanics in there, and, and we had discussions about how do we communicate these things to the player, and how much do we need to communicate some of these things to the player. And that's where we kind of settled on, well, the player can figure out the idea of shooting enemies and moving, because those are kind of expected in this sort of game. So they're going to be looking for that functionality. But this phase mechanic was just so important to being able to play the game. It's a defensive ability as well as a navigational one. Uh, when you activate it, you usually go faster, and you're, the idea is that you're out of phase with reality, so bullets pass right through you, that sort of thing. You stop interacting with physics is kind of the idea. And because it was so important both as a defensive ability, um, that things like bosses were balanced around, as well as this navigational tool for getting over where the road had discon discontinuities. I'm not going to use that word. Where the road uh, was not continuous, where it would break up, it was fundamentally important that in the very beginning, sort of early parts of the game, we hammered home to the player, you need to know how to do this, learn how to do this, and we just had to be very blunt, very direct with that. So that was such a key skill that we basically made most of our tutorializing around get this skill there's a lot of other stuff to discover we'll trust you to discover it over the course of things like looking at the controls um or you're looking at achievements that call these other behaviors out things like that so you there's something to discover also but this one thing was just so important that we really had and and so atypical to this sort of game that we just had to put so much attention on calling it out so yeah and um that is the thing. Like, so the core thing to pull out of that is just that idea of you need to pick your battles when you're deciding on what you want to teach your player because there's some things that are very extremely important to playing your game, and you will know what those are because your game will be about them. Well, okay, I'll, let me rephrase that. You will want to know what those are. You might not know what those are immediately. Um, but definitely you will want to figure out what those are, and you will want to make sure that if you're not directly conveying them, that they come out uh, somehow through the natural course of play. 
Yeah, and it's important to playtest and say, okay, what are the things that the player absolutely must know or they cannot learn anything else in this game or they're going to be very frustrated with the experience. And to some extent, you have to trust the players to discover the other stuff and provide ways that they can learn them. But it's just knowing and, and, and like Redcoat said, pick your battles and, and figure out what the stuff is, is worth fighting for to say, no, the player has to know this. And they, they cannot play the game without it. And, and that's very strong language, and it's that way intentionally. There's going to be a lot of things when you're, uh, as a game creator, when you're looking at your game, you're going to be like, well, the player needs to know this, though, but they need to know this, and they need to know this, and they need to know this. And without this, it's just lacking. It's just very easy to get caught up in the idea of wanting the player to have the same intimate knowledge of the game that you do. But part of what can be fun for a lot of players is discovering a lot of that intimate knowledge themselves. And it's there's a fine road to walk with with making tutorials, so that way you give the player enough hand-holding that they have time to get their legs under them, but not so much that they never have the chance to fall and learn for themselves. So an example of this in the uh, AAA market is actually the Bayonetta series. Um, first level uh, in both Bayonetta 1 and Bayonetta 2, you are taught that which time and which, tri- uh, which time is a thing, um, which is just when an enemy attacks you, you can dodge, and when you dodge in a specific way, time slows down. They take time and stop play just to let you practice this and learn it, because this is one of the core elements of how you play the game. Now, there's tons of other stuff involved in how you can control your character, how the different moves work, um, how guns work, um, but all of these things, you can use them in a way that allows you to play through the game um, at a proficient level without too much teaching. This is a part of the idea of an intuitive control scheme. Um, But what comes with it is that idea that um, it allows the player to discover these intricacies if they want to. Um, And this, I mean, this is one of the things that, you know, I said in er, in my first podcast, you know, Devil May Cry, the games of that light of that ilk, uh, were some of my favorites, and that's part of that's part of why it's because there's so much to discover about how these moves interact and how to be stylish, because that's what those games are about. And that's something that comes also from their uh, presentation is they're presented in such a way where they just say, You did this thing. Oh, didn't that look cool? So moving on from from this sort of idea of tutorials is another kind of important concept of um, what things are unfair difficulty. And this has to do with kind of the idea of how much is the computer cheating? Um, This is an experience that I think a lot of players have had to varying degrees. And so uh, I'm going to back up a little bit. One of the things that a lot of games establish is a baseline of what is this game. Uh, To take a Mario game, for example, you move and you jump and you land on enemies. And that's how you beat most enemies is you jump on something, right? Uh, Usually their head, because that's how landing works. And so when you have these sorts of rules of engagement, one of the things that can be really frustrating is when those rules get changed on you, when something does not play by the rules you do, and or when something is subverting or abusing the rules. So a, a really, really good example of this 
is uh, actually here's here's two good examples. The first one we've talked about fighting games a lot. So the first example is a fighting game where the AI reads your input and reacts perfectly to it. It's not that hard to necessarily make an AI like that. It's not very human. And when you have a game that is particularly these sorts of versus experiences, um, when you have a game that is ostensibly about two humans playing against each other, when the AI behaves in a very inhuman way, it leads to a very strange and potentially very unfun experience. So as a good example, uh, it's something that can be kind of frustrating. Um, some people will argue about the validity of this game, but in Smash Brothers 4, the AI on the higher difficulty levels is extraordinarily good at doing spot dodges, both um, on the ground and in the air. This can make it extremely hard to connect with attacks, even when you're kind of following the trajectory and doing a really good job of following up, because their reflexes are literally inhumanly good in terms of both judging distance and as well as timing. It can be very, very difficult to catch them. Um, contrastingly, sometimes you can catch them in stuff that players wouldn't fall into, but the AI, because of how it works, does get caught by. But that's kind of a, an opposite end of the problem. And so what can happen with these is this is a sort of a difficulty that is inherently cheating. That the AI is cheating and not actually being smart, it's just being good. And there's a difference there. Um, another really good example of this is in the Pokemon games, there's something called the Battle Tower. These are basically grind-a-thons for good items. And to keep the player from being able to go indefinitely, the game throws more and more levels of dumb at the player, typically in the form of both the AI knowing what move the player has entered before the AI performs its action, as well as outright manipulating the random number generator. What are my chances to crit, to, to get a critical hit? Well, as the player, as you go through the battle tower, those probably go down, and the AIs go up. What are the chances special conditions will will happen. As the player, go down, AI, go up. Uh, the chance that moves hit for moves that don't have 100 accuracy. Same sort of thing. And so you get to these points where this 30% accurate move has 100% accuracy when the AI is using it, and that's just not fair. And that's the sort of situation that has a player crying, this is complete garbage. This is, this is junk. This is bullcrap. And it leads to a very unfun experience. So, coming back from games cheating, I wanted to move to the idea of um, what really is difficulty in a game. And, I mean, that is a pretty good thing to seek from, from cheating because, um, you know, cheating makes you feel like the experience is cheapened. Uh, and, you know, that leans us more towards the this is hard as opposed to this is challenging. Um, so, one of the things that I wanted to hit on here was the concept of gating. So, by this I mean... You know, the re when you have something that is really hard to get to, um, you know, like uh, an ending that is kind of cool and, you know, you want to get there, um, it doesn't necessarily enrich the experience uh, to, necess to have that gated there. I mean, it is, it's nice to have a reward for sure, but saying something is just absolutely the most ridiculous challenge that you can ever have and then putting something that really does really is a part of the core part of what's rewarding with the game behind that particular wall um does kind of um curtail your uh curtail your player's experience now that's not to say that um making it so that there is a difficulty that there is a little bit of a you need to do this this well to get this thing 
um, in your game is a bad thing, that's actually a pretty good thing um, because that makes it so that there is this role of the player slowly but surely getting better. But there's a difference between something that is core to your game, um, like say um, any one of your endings for the game. Like if you don't have multiple endings and you only have one ending, and your game is the most ridiculously hard thing ever, um, then you probably don't necessarily want the player to have to be the the god of play for this game, so to speak. Um, that might be a little bit sacrilegious, but I'll go with that anyway. Um, well, maybe not go with that anyway. But be the person who is the absolute most amazing at the game. You kind of want to bring that level down a little bit so that the player that so that the player can actually reach something because as much as it's fun to reach for the stars unless you have nasa you're not really going to get anything out of it yeah just thinking of some about difficulty is it judging the difficulty of something is going to be based upon player skill um so difficulty it's just thinking about it a little bit can be measured in the ratio of failure to success or vice versa um and uh, so, for example, an enemy where if you look at the average success rate of players is, say, they, uh, a player succeeds after three attempts, for example. So um, that's, I don't, I don't know, I'm not a stati- statistician for figuring out how to turn that into fancy speak. But the basic idea is it takes them four attempts total, and it's on the fourth one that they're able to succeed. So that's what, 75% of their attempts fail. So that's probably got relatively high difficulty. So I think the and it's there's a little bit of weirdness um, involved with like you also have to take into account the number of attempts required to have that success. But if you take that data and then aggregate it across players to kind of try to find an average um, number of attempts required or average success ratio, uh, which might be more useful for gauging, for example, a hallway that a player has to travel through multiple times. Um, that gives you an idea of how difficult it is if you take uh, if you can control for other factors. So if you control for player skill and um, player capability and or avatar capability. And, and what I mean by avatar capability, I mean what can the player's character do? For example, using Dark Souls because it's a great good example for these things. Do they have a weapon that has been upgraded? Do they have armor that has been upgraded? Um, what are they walking around with equipment-wise? What level is their character? So that will determine how well they can get through a hallway. And so you, you control for that, you control for player skill, and then once you've controlled for those things, you have an idea of how difficult this hallway is for those factors. So then you can tweak those factors and, and get results back, and that gives you kind of an idea of how difficult something is. Basically, how much does the player fail at this compared to how much do they succeed at it? So you might have a player that's very skilled at the game that encounters this hallway, and they get through it, like, most of the time, but every now and then they die to it because they messed up. That's just going to happen. So for a highly skilled player, maybe this hallway isn't hard. Maybe it has a low difficulty. But for a new player, maybe they fail, like, three or four times every time that they try to make it through the hallway, and they only succeed on the, the fifth or sixth attempt, right? So then for the new player, for the an inexperienced player, it has a very high difficulty. And I think trying to look at difficulty as a static number is probably a poor way of looking at it because it's, it's such a personal sort of thing. 
Um, so then what you're looking at is sort of aggregates for what you are expecting the player to be at that time when you're, you're encountering that thing. So when the player first encounters that hallway, you're expecting... What are you expecting? Are you expecting it to be hard or are you expecting it to be easy? Um, and a, an interesting example of this... Uh, I haven't played the game myself, but I've heard about it, is Kirby's Epic Yarn, I believe, where you have all of these collectibles that you're trying to accumulate, and my impression is, like, taking damage or whatever causes you to lose some amount of them. And so, the game, that, that is the failure mechanism, is, to the best of my understanding of the game, is you lose access to this thing that you want to try to complete the level with. So, completing the level with all of the things might be really hard, but just completing the level might be really easy. And this is where you can kind of have this sort of goal setting, and then some players are going to be way more driven to get all of the things than other players. So for the players that are trying to get all of the things, the game becomes really difficult, and the ones that aren't, it becomes really easy. And so that kind of is an interesting concept also of how do you judge difficulty is how much does the player fail? Most definitely. And I mean, there are plenty of games that have examples of this idea of you have the core, you have the core game, and then you have the challenges uh, that are related to finishing the game. Of course, one of the things that comes along with that is making sure that your challenges are at least somewhat in line with what your gameplay is. Um, but that's definitely still a thing. Um, I mean, the original Yoshi's Island with um, the red uh, with the red coins and the the flower. Uh, the sunflowers are those sunflowers? Yeah, that's uh, that's San- that's the sound of Santir shrugging. Um, I'm not a botanist, but uh, yeah. So those happy those happy smiles that are in very dangerous places often, or just hidden away. But um, the the main thing is that getting through that game, uh, and that game is actually uh, I probably also put that one at moderate difficulty. Once you start getting into the later levels, it starts getting pretty. It starts. It starts throwing some things at you. Um, but um, getting through the levels themselves is just a matter of go through the level, and you'll get there eventually. Um, you've, you're a Yoshi, so you're indestructible, uh, unless there are spikes, because spikes are the bane of all things. Just just ask Mega Man. Um, and lava, because, well, lava. But um, you can get through the level, and, I mean... Um, Baby Mario follows the rings, the rings route of you get hit and then he's out there and you need to grab him. Um, but it's still a thing of the game is pretty forgiving in that area. But the aspects of getting the the red coins and getting the uh, the sunflowers is actually fairly difficult from the standpoint of you have to find them. And the levels are actually a lot larger when you're not just looking to get to the end. Um, and I think that was a really interesting stroke uh, on their on their part was to make that decision of you can get more out of this game if you want to challenge yourself. And to do that, instead of um, doing a de facto let's raise the difficulty kind of deal, because it's just it's a platformer, it's a little bit harder to do that with, it is explicitly just there are these things that you don't have to get to be considered a winner. Uh, in the game, or to to win the game, they are there for your own enrichment. Should you choose to go after them, should you accept this mission, these coins will in fact not self destruct. Although you may die in the process of going after them, but yeah, that's uh, definitely a thing um, in the concept of difficulty. 
Um, but looking at uh, looking back at that concept of um, false difficulty as well, um, certainly it should bear mentioning. I mean, we're in um, it's something in the fighting game area for sure. Um, input is not necessarily a full uh, a a, a full difficulty. Now, I can't say that it's not a real difficulty, um, but it may not necessarily be, let's say, a fair difficulty um, after a fashion. Because in any other game type, the idea of having to do um, some funky things to get your stuff to appear um, would be a little bit unacceptable. Um, it would be felt as though, um, you know, something bad. Yeah, just think about all of the times that you've played a game and something has gone wrong with the controls, either because they were extraordinarily unintuitive, like you keep thinking you're supposed to push one button and it's always wants to be the other, or for just some reason every now and then the controls just aren't responsive, right? These are things that aren't intended to make the game difficult, typically speaking, and are more unfortunate accidents. Um, bugs or, or what have you. They're not really difficulty so much as their, well, misfortune. And it to call them difficulty is feels like a bit of a stretch. They do make games harder, but they're not really going to generally be in an, in, an, in an intended way. And they're usually in a very frustrating one. And so, I mean, it's definitely one of those, and this is definitely a dicey area, because, you know, when you look at the, when you look at it in the fighting game area, for certain, there are plenty of people who have overtaken and absorbed the idea of the extraneous of the extraneous uh, input methods um, and to be fair I have to congratulate them for a lot of the stuff they've they've done like uh, I just the very concept of doing a doing a full circle on your on your pad and fooling the game into thinking that you're not jumping um, or charge partitioning which is the concept of you put a chart you have characters that hold back um, to gain a charge, and then normally you'd push forward to let go of the charge. But you can do things of where you fool the game into thinking that you're actually holding the charge when you're actually not. Yes, it's as confusing as it sounds. Um, but um, I digress. That's a part of the challenge for. That's a part of the challenge for you know the player in front of the in front of the TV. Um, but at the same time, it's a question of does that need to be there? Um, and, you know, we've seen some games that have attempted to um, approach this. You know, we've had uh, Dive Kick, uh, which was actually pretty well received. I mean, it didn't stick around for very long because it's not a very complex game. Um, it has a lot of interesting, uh, it has a lot of interesting mind games and stuff, but the depth of play might be, is a little bit less than you would expect. Um, and, of course, there's Smash Brothers, which people are still out to lunch on whether or not that's a fighting game, which is why I coined the term Versus Series. So um, it's still a game in which players play against each other. Um, and it follows a more sim uh, simple uh, control scheme. And there are a few things with how it controls that could be considered to be a little bit finicky. Uh, tilts, I'm looking at you. Um... But definitely, it's a game that's attempting to have a more accessible control scheme and focus a lot more on the player versus player aspect. Um, that said, uh, I will again make the note of as a player of the of as a player of the 2D games of Guilty Gear, of Street Fighter, of Third Strike, all of those games. I can understand the concept of 
having something that makes it just a little bit harder to do it all. Now, it's really a question of when you're looking to make other games, do you need that? Um, And I think that's really, really key. If you're making another Street Fighter, well, that has become a part of those games, so you probably are going to need it. Um, The same goes for Guilty Gear and its predecessors. But if you're going to try and do something different in there, then I would actually hazard um, it might be worthwhile to really look into other ways of of complexifying that interaction between the players. Because there's a lot. There are a lot of ways to really look at it. Um, And I think, you know, uh, locking ourselves into just the... uh, for lack of a better term, people will probably hate hate me for this, uh, Street Fighter or Bust, um, is not necessarily the best way to continue to grow it. Um, I think uh, one example, uh, recent example actually, uh, Seth Killian's um, Rolling Thunder, uh, which uses a much more simple uh, com- uh, input, uh, input style uh, and still has some very interesting interactions and it's one of the few fighting games, I'm happy to say, that I can play on the keyboard. I can't do that with the others. That is amazing to me. Um, and there are actually several other players of the game who have had a similar sentiment. It's like, what? I can play this on the keyboard? That's crazy. That's black magic. But um, in any case, that's still, uh, that's still a thing. And that's just, you know, attacking the idea of what is false difficulty. And Again, this comes back from that idea of what is your game about? Um, what is it that you want to be difficult in your game? Yeah, something else uh, that's also really, really, really important to make sure people understand. Things that make your game tedious do not make your game harder. They make it boring. Gigantic health pools of enemies that just do not die, I'm looking at you. Saying, perform this task perfectly 73,000 times is just boring. Because... Either it's either boring or it's very, 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 very frustrating. And usually some horrible mix of the two. The idea of games is that they're something that's an engaging experience that we enjoy. Not necessarily have fun. Fun is very, very nice to have in a game. But they're, they're an experience that offers us some sort of useful or rewarding experience. Uh, I, I don't have great terms here because vocabulary is always a difficulty. But... It's this idea that, uh, just because there's such a great range, this idea that either there's like a cathartic emotional experience or something that's very intellectually engaging or stimulating or something that's just something uh, enjoyable to try to overcome or just try to figure out how things work or whatever. There's, and there's a lot of different things that, are people, that people are looking for from games also. And usually they're not looking to get super frustrated or get really bored. So... Uh, just difficulty sliders where it's like, okay, there's hard, which makes the game pretty friggin' hard, and then there's super hard, which makes the game really boring because all the enemies have health pools the size of the Pacific Ocean. That's that's maybe not necessary. It's maybe not really useful. Because, again, and this does actually come back to one of the, one of the concepts here, where, um, say, in a game, in a lot of games where they substitute um, health pools for difficulty, um, the concept of being good at DPS is actually not a thing. When I say DPS, uh, I mean damage per second. Um, that concept of d- damage per second is the idea that putting out a certain amount of damage on an opponent 
um, is a non-trivial deal. Um, and so the idea that you go, uh, when you do 500 points of damage, you did it because you're good at the game, and normally you'd actually be doing like 120 or something. That's when an HP buff makes the game a little bit harder, but uh, makes the game harder in a more challenging manner. But normally, normally we're in this area of where um, the HP buff is just making you do the same thing over and over and over again, um, such to the point where it's like, I want to kill this enemy, and I would have killed him about an hour ago. But he's still here, and I'm still here, and I'm probably not better for this hour of pushing the button over and over again. Yeah, and part of the reason why I'd call this sort of thing, particularly massive health pools, um, just a point of clarification, this can be accomplished either by the enemy having very hard, large amounts of health, so they take a lot of damage, having very hard armor, so the player deals very little damage, or the player having reduced damage output, so they can't kill them as quickly. Um, it The only reason why it appears to be hard is because it extends the length of time that the encounter lasts, which gives the player more time to mess up. In that standpoint, it does make things harder just because it increases the chances for the player to fail, but it does so in the least engaging way possible. Exactly. And so that brings us to, uh, well, some of the examples, and I have to um, I have to do give a little bit of credit on this one because, uh, I mean, um, Legend of Zelda is actually a pretty big example of that one. The Ocarina of Time, um, where a lot of the enemy patterns are based around the concept of uh, you... It's not so much that you're actually finding your opening as much as the opponent is just going to stand there for a very long period. Then he'll open his arms, and then you slash him, and then he'll stand there for an even longer period. Then he'll open his arms, and you'll attack him again. And it's, it's a very... There isn't really pattern recognition in there. It's more just... Peekaboo! Oh, oh! You got stabbed in the face. Don't you feel bad? Peekaboo! You got stabbed in the face. I did it again. And you know, there's some fun to having a, a doing a commentary like I did, but most people don't do that. <laughs> um, but I digress. the The concept of making something actually difficult in a way that is challenging to a player um, really does come down to. Uh, making it very enriching. Um, so I feel like we've hit a lot of the stuff on false difficulty. Uh, Santa, you got anything on? That? Um, I don't think so. I just respect the player, respect their time, um, and think about how much, uh, as a game designer, how much do you want to sit down and go through it, and then don't just inflict that on your players because you want to get back at them for all the time you had to spend testing that. <laughs> yeah. Um. A vindictive designer is an angry designer, and an angry designer needs a Snickers. Um, <laughs> you're not yourself when you have when you don't have one. But I digress. Um, so let's uh, step back for a moment and take a look at some of the stuff we've gone over uh, today. There, there was a lot we went over in this one, and I'm not even certain if we're gonna actually hit it all. Hit all of those parts. But so the first thing is, at its core, difficulty deals with. Um, how well the player can learn your game and how enriching that experience of learning the game is. Um, I feel like this is, if there is nothing else you take from this, um, that is a very key element, is the idea that difficulty 
um, where it's hard um, is the type of thing of where it doesn't want you to learn about it. It never wanted you to learn about it. And you're just going to have to bang your head at, against it until you know know what you know because you just pulled it out of nowhere, basically. Whereas a challenging game does want you to know about it, but it's not going to give it to you for free. Uh, it wants you to learn about it and, after a fashion, for lack of a better term, learn to love it. Because at the end of the game, at the end of the day, a game wants to be loved and enjoyed. Um, and I know I talk about it as though it's a person, but as a designer, uh, this kind of happens. You'll start talking about a game uh, in Persona non grata. Well, not Persona non grata, but in a per- in a personified form, just because you work with the dang things for so long. They kind of do have their own personalities in their own ways. Yeah, and, and for me, sort of to summarize, difficulty is... How much does the player have to fail before they can succeed? Or or how much does the player succeed versus how much they fail? And challenge is, is the process of learning to change that ratio in the favor of success an enjoyable one? And uh, there's a lot of ways that that can be not the case. And there's a lot of ways of making it so that it is more difficult for the player to learn how to do the game. And I, I know I used the word difficult there again, but it's important to get the idea that making a game harder to learn for the sake of making it more mysterious or something, probably not paying off a whole lot, but making systems to learn that you don't explicitly tell the player about can be a good way of allowing them to discover things. And just not getting too caught up in being known as being a hard game, but as a rewarding one. I think that's definitely one of the things. At the end of the day, you want your player to feel good about that experience they just had. And um, when it comes to challenge, one of the things that feels good about doing something that's very hard, or learning a new talent or a new skill, is that overcoming uh, and is feeling that, yeah, I did that. And on that note, something that's really important in the process is the, I can do this. Having that sensation of, of feeling that Yes, this is. I see where I went wrong. I see why I failed, and I can do this. Yeah, definitely. So I think that about wraps us up for this one. This was a pretty long cast. Uh, I didn't expect it to run this long, but we had a lot of stuff to cover on this one. Um, so I would uh, like to give uh, the two of us the chance to sign off. Um, but before we do that, uh, this is uh, Vernacular Games. So. Uh, we're on Facebook. Just search Vernacular Games. Uh, we've got a WordPress. You can search Vernacular Games again. We actually got both domains. Yay! Um, uh, I know it's a, it's a little thing, but I'm very happy about it. Um, and um, you can find this on YouTube, and um, unless you're watching it on YouTube, in which case, uh, here it is. Um, but you can also find it on SoundCloud, in case if you're on SoundCloud... C, answer B, that just happened. Um, so, in any case, um, yeah, this is Redcoat signing off. This is Santier signing off. Have a good whatever time of day it is for you. And uh, we'll see you next time. Make sure to play the games you want to play, boyos. <laughs>